Amen. Good morning. Happy Easter. My name is Emily. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. And now that we've had our history lesson, we're going to have some fun. So we are going to start out with an Easter egg hunt this morning. Our five eggs hidden around this room. And when I say go, you can stand up if you'd like to participate. Run if you're really competitive. And if you find one, bring them up front and we're going to open them all together. And these ones in the basket in the middle do not count. Ready, set, go. <laughs> Come on up if you find one. We'll open them together. We've got two. Who else found one? Come on. I see two. Who else? Oh, bring it up if you found one. We'll open them together. Sue's got one. Where's the green and the yellow? Okay, we have one right there. And yellow. Who has the yellow? Oh, <laughs> Chloe, you found it. Um, okay, let's open up the pink one first. Robin's egg candies. Nice. Okay, you can take your egg and have a seat. <laughs> let's do um, orange. Tanya. Oh, those, no, those are the Reese's Pieces eggs. Mm, okay. Have a seat, have a seat. Yellow. Money egg. That's always the best egg. Wow, congratulations, Chloe. That is 15 cents for you. You guys can have a seat. All right, let's do the green egg. Oh, what is that? It's a note. What does it say? Miss Heather, you want to help? Congratulations, you found an egg. <laughs> okay, congratulations, you guys can have a seat. And Doreen, our blue egg. Doreen's been a little suspicious. It's Just open it, Doreen. Just <laughs> water. <laughs> it's, a, it's a water egg. Um, I'll, like I'll take, take that. I'll take that. I'll, I'll trade you, Doreen. You can actually have the best prize of all. You get a whole bag of candy for for getting wet this morning. So thank you for participating. Um, these are all real prizes from my childhood. So growing up, we had our Easter egg hunts every year and we had the standard prizes of candy and money. But my family did Easter egg hunts well into our 20s. And so my siblings and I would come home from college for Easter and so our hunts just got more and more intense as we got older. And one year, my sister filled the eggs, and she filled them with things like a note or water or a lock of her hair. <laughs> True story. At least I didn't do that to you today. Yeah. My dad would get super into it, too. He bought these specialty eggs that, like, one had a suction cup on the back so he could put it somewhere really sneaky, or one had a string attached so he could hang it way up high where we could never reach it. And his goal was always that we would be finding eggs months and months later. <laughs> one year, we didn't find the last egg until we were decorating for Christmas. It was so fun. <laughs> um, I love... Easter egg hunts, and I just, I'm not a dad, but I can imagine that as a dad, it would be such a good feeling to have your 20-something-year-old kids just give up partway through your Easter egg hunt because you've hidden the eggs so well, and I bet a few of you out there this morning are like, yeah, challenge accepted. <laughs> My husband, Phil, did not grow up doing Easter egg hunts much, but they would hide their Easter baskets, and that's fun too. 
So when Phil and I first got married, we bought things for each other's Easter baskets, and then we hid them for each other to find, and I did really good. We were living in a tiny little apartment at the time, so not too many places for an Easter basket to hide, and I found the one that he made for me pretty much right away, and then he looked and looked and looked and turned our place upside down. You're nodding your head this way, but I know you remember this. (laughs) I had to start giving him clues for where his basket was hidden because, um, do you remember where it was? It was in the freezer. (laughs) To be fair, I had bought him ice cream, so it felt like a very natural place to hide it, but um, yeah, I was pretty proud of myself for, for that one. Easter traditions are so much fun. I love the egg hunts and the basket. I love coming to church and seeing people a little bit more dressed up for one day, especially the kids. I love heading home or to a friend's house or to a restaurant for a good Easter brunch. As Christians, Easter is the best day of the year. And we know that it's not about the baskets or the clothes or the brunches or any other silly tradition. These are just fun ways to celebrate. It's the best day of the year because of what we're celebrating because of who we're celebrating. Jesus is alive. He lived and he died and he came back to life. This is the greatest event in human history and it is worth celebrating. A few years ago, I was driving down the road and I had the thought, God, I sure hope you're real. I sure hope that Jesus really lived. I sure hope that Jesus really lived, that he really died and that he really lived again. Because all my eggs are in this basket. I wasn't thinking about Easter eggs at the time, just the general phrase that we use, but I had that thought, all my eggs are in this basket. I've given my life, my time, my energy, my career to telling other people about Jesus in hopes that they might decide to follow him too. So if he isn't real, if he isn't alive, what a waste. All my eggs are in this basket. But the more I've thought about this, I've wondered, are all my eggs really in this basket? If I picture Jesus holding a giant Easter basket and me putting in all my eggs, all my trust, all my belief, all my devotion, would I be overestimating myself to claim that I'm really all in? Don't I hold back some eggs to keep in my own basket, just in case? Don't we all do this in some areas of life? Maybe it's easy to trust God and say, I'll give you this egg, but then other eggs we hold on to a little bit tighter. I started to think, who is really an example of someone who's all in, of someone who has put all their eggs in Jesus' basket? What would that even look like? I thought of Peter. If anyone was all in for Jesus, it was Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples and three best friends. Let's jump into the scriptures, starting with this encounter that one of Jesus' other three best friends, John, records in John chapter 6. Jesus has been teaching some hard things, as he was known to do, and then John writes, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else would I go? There's nothing else out there for me. All Peter's eggs are in Jesus' basket. He's left his job, his secure housing, his family to follow Jesus around, just to be with Jesus and learn from him. This guy had sacrificed everything. He had put all his trust in the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the one coming from God to save the world. Peter was all in until he wasn't. 
After Jesus is arrested, most of the disciples flee, afraid that they'll be arrested too. But Peter sticks around to witness the trial. John tells us that it's nighttime, it's cold out, and so Peter is standing around a fire with some servants and officials keeping themselves warm when a servant girl speaks up. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Peter doesn't run, but he hides. He doesn't want to reveal his identity. He's curious to see what's going to happen, but he's afraid too. Jesus is on trial, and this is not the path he had envisioned for the Messiah. He starts to doubt like everyone else. Maybe I've been following the wrong guy. Maybe Jesus isn't who he said he is. Maybe I shouldn't have put all my eggs in his basket. Jesus is being questioned, and then John writes this. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. And then, for the third time, one of the servants of the high priest challenges Peter, saying, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Jesus knew that this was going to happen. He had even told Peter about it ahead of time earlier that night as they ate their last dinner together. Jesus said to Peter, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now here we are, and it's happened. Just a few hours later, just like Jesus said it would What a turn of events. Peter was all in. Even if I have to die too, I won't disown you, Jesus. And yet he does. Three times. Luke records these details about Peter's third denial. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter is absolutely crushed. He's a broken man, so afraid, so confused. He had wanted to be all in. He was all in for three years. He gave everything to follow Jesus. But Peter is like all of us. Sometimes the doubts creep in. The fear overwhelms. Trusting in someone else becomes too much, too risky. So he goes into self-protection mode. He takes back his eggs. Jesus' trials don't go in his favor, and the next day he's hung on a tree to die. He dies on Friday afternoon and has to be buried by sundown because that's the start of the Jewish Sabbath, and the Jews take seriously Sabbath as a day of rest. A massive stone is rolled over the entrance to the tomb, and Roman guards are stationed beside it. Jesus is in the tomb all day Saturday, and then early Sunday morning, some women go back to the tomb to honor Jesus by finishing up the burial job properly. They bring with them some ointments and spices in order to, um, to honor his body now that they have the time and aren't rushing to prepare for the Sabbath. Here's what we learn about that morning from John's account. Early on the first day of the week, while it is still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That's John, the one writing this account, by the way. And I think it's hilarious that that's the code name he gives himself. The one Jesus loved. (laughs) Jesus' favorite. Mary came running to Peter and John and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. 
So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> Seriously, John, this is so funny to me because it's such a great glimpse into the fact that Jesus' disciples and best friends were normal human beings. John is recording the greatest event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus, who's proving in this moment that he's God, and yet John has to make it just a little bit about himself, too, and make sure everybody knows that he and Peter are in a foot race to the tomb, and he was faster and got there first. It's so good. He, John, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. (laughs) Then Simon Peter came along behind him, slow poke, and went straight into the tomb. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, (laughs) I cannot handle this, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all write accounts of Jesus' resurrection that include some interesting details that John leaves out. And sometimes people see this and say, this story can't be true because there are contradictions about what happened. To that specific objection, I'd say, I think because we have four accounts from four different gospel writers, it gives us a fuller picture of what occurred. The accounts don't contain contradictions because they can actually all be harmonized very well. But it is true that the gospel writers care about different things, and so they include slightly different details. And I think a really good example of that is the fact that nobody else cares that Peter and John are racing to the tomb and that John gets there first, but this is clearly a very important detail to John. I want to pause and recognize that people have plenty of other objections to the validity of Jesus' resurrection, and I'm sure that includes some people in this very room. So if a real hang-up you have with Christianity is that you just don't think Jesus' resurrection is possible, I just want to affirm that's a completely reasonable doubt. We don't typically experience dead people coming back to life, and we weren't there 2,000 years ago to witness whether or not for ourselves if it happened. So it just makes sense that we wouldn't automatically or immediately believe something just because we read about it in an old book. For you, I'd encourage and challenge you to not just write off Jesus' resurrection as impossible, but to actually take the time to dig in a little deeper to what's been written on this topic. And one resource I'd especially recommend is The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas and Michael Lacona. It's a thorough, well-written book that I think gives some really compelling evidence for the idea that Jesus' resurrection was a historical event that really happened and that it truly is the best explanation for what occurred. I'd say read that book and then let's chat. I'd love to know what you think of their argument and what pushback you may still have. For today, I'd ask you to consider with me the possibility that Jesus really did rise from the dead and that the accounts we read about it in Scripture are accurate. If we can agree to suspend our disbelief for the day, then we can move on and finish reading the rest of the story together. Deal? Now let's focus on Peter for a second. The last time we saw him, he had just denied knowing Jesus, and he was devastated. We have no record of whether he was at Jesus' crucifixion. There's a chance he wasn't there. He had just betrayed Jesus, disowned him. His eggs had all been in Jesus' basket, but he had taken them back one by one with each denial. And then Jesus looked right at him. You can just imagine the sinking feeling you'd get in your stomach if you were Peter as Jesus' eyes pierce into your heart. He knows what you did. Peter felt terrible. So who knows where Peter was as Jesus died and was buried. I'm guessing maybe he was off somewhere trying to process and make sense of it all. 
Had he just wasted the last three years of his life? Had he been totally wrong to follow Jesus and to put all his eggs in Jesus' basket? But what about the miracles? What about all he had seen and experienced? Maybe Jesus was who he said he was, and he had just betrayed the Son of God. Sunday morning, the women who found the tomb empty run and tell Peter, and Peter goes to check it out for himself. He sees the empty tomb, and it's another completely confusing piece of the puzzle. He doesn't know what to make of that either. He certainly didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead. Nobody did. The women went to the tomb armed with their spices, fully expecting to find a dead body there. Peter doesn't know what to do with this new information that the tomb is empty. Until this. After seeing the empty tomb, Peter went back home, back to his old ways, his old life. He didn't know what else to do, so he went back to the one thing he knew very well how to do, the thing that had been his career. He went fishing. John writes, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, some of the other disciples. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Ah, Peter. (laughs) This reminds me of the movie Hook about Peter Pan from like 1991. Robin Williams plays Peter Pan and he gets old and is basically unrecognizable. And then one of the Lost Boys takes his old wrinkly face and squishes it in different directions in his hand until he makes his mouth into a big smile. And then he says, oh, there you are, Peter. He finally recognizes him. This is the part of the story where we finally start to recognize Peter again, big, bold, all-in Peter. He jumps into the water. He doesn't wait for the others to row the boat to shore. Peter is the only one who dives in and swims. And we're even told they're not that far away, just a hundred yards out, but Peter can't wait to see Jesus. And this is a beautiful picture because we don't see any more weeping from Peter. He isn't cowering in the boat, anxious about seeing Jesus. Peter is done with his denying. All he wants is to be reunited with his friend and prove to him that he's back in, that all his eggs are in Jesus' basket again. But Jesus says, let's slow down a little here, Peter. Jesus cooks his disciples' breakfast, and then John writes this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he says, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I think one interesting detail in this story is that John writes that in this conversation, Peter feels hurt. Why is that? Maybe it's because Peter realizes that Jesus is asking him three times because he's denied him three times. 
Maybe it felt like Jesus was rubbing a little salt in his wound by bringing up their last encounter. Peter just wants to forget about that whole ordeal. It seems like maybe what Peter's thinking is, I just swam to you, Jesus. Can't you see I'm all in? Do you really have to bring that up again? But Jesus knows what he's doing, and he is intentionally reinstating Peter. With each of Peter's affirmations, it's a replacement of his denials. This is what true forgiveness looks like. Forgiveness isn't ignoring the pain or betrayal that has happened or sweeping it under the rug. It's bringing it to light, acknowledging it, but then saying, I'm not holding these things you did against you. Jesus isn't trying to shame Peter or scorn him for his doubt or disbelief. He's cooking him breakfast and reconciling their relationship bit by bit. Jesus calls his followers to be all in. We read in several places in the Gospels about the cost of following Jesus, that he desires all of our eggs. And yet, he's so, so gracious so that when we stumble, when we fail, when we take our eggs back, he is there and is waiting for us to come to him so he can gently, so gently restore us. The God we worship is not a one-strike-and-you're-out kind of God. His love never runs out. His forgiveness never runs out. Putting our eggs in Jesus' basket is a process that lasts a lifetime. It's not an all-or-nothing, one-time decision. Every day we choose where we put our eggs. This is why I love reading about Peter's encounters with Jesus as told by John. The follower of Jesus who seemed to be the most all-in still struggled at times, still took back his eggs, took back his trust. And yet look how Jesus responds to him. Jesus is so gracious with Peter. He's so gentle with him. You can almost picture him standing on that beach after breakfast, swooping down and picking up those dropped eggs one by one and putting them back in his basket. I think that's how Jesus is with us, too. For some of us, we would say that all our eggs are in Jesus' basket, for the most part, anyway. We may take back an egg now and then, thinking there's some circumstance we can't trust Jesus with, but overall, we're there. We trust him. We're following him. I think the encouragement for you today is to keep going, to know that trusting and following Jesus isn't a one-time event, but is a daily decision and a lifelong journey to keep putting your eggs in Jesus' basket. I bet for others in this room, we used to have our eggs in Jesus' basket. But something happened that caused us to believe that we couldn't trust Jesus anymore. So we took back our eggs. Maybe it feels like you dumped out the whole basket. Maybe showing up at church on Easter Sunday was your way of saying, here you go, God, I'll give you one egg. I don't know if you're real or there or if you care. I don't know about this whole Jesus thing anymore, but I'll give you one more shot. I think Jesus is so delighted by that. I just picture him picking up one of your dumped out eggs, putting it in his basket and saying, welcome home. Have a seat. Let me make you some breakfast. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus with your eggs and showing up today was your first step in checking out what this Jesus is all about. I think he would say the same thing to you. Welcome. So glad you're here. Or maybe you've been kind of on the fence. You've given him a few eggs here and there, but if you're honest, you've never really been an all-in person when it comes to following Jesus. And that makes total sense, too. We're taught our whole lives not to put all our eggs in one basket. 
As kids, we're trained to become well-rounded, a jack-of-all-trades, a little bit good at everything. We're told by financial advisors to diversify our assets, and there's obviously wisdom in that. So that is how we're used to living. We aren't used to putting all our eggs in one basket, and we're taught that this isn't even wise. Which leaves us with the question we haven't addressed today. Why should I put my eggs in Jesus' basket? Why put my eggs in Jesus' basket? Why give my trust, my belief, my devotion to Jesus instead of trusting in myself or another religion or belief system or worldview? Why Jesus' basket? Whether you're just checking Jesus out or coming back after a period of doubt, maybe you've been halfway in for a while now, would generally consider yourself all in, or maybe you're somewhere totally different along this journey of faith, I think we all need to ask ourselves this question There are probably a million ways to answer this question, but for today, I'm just going to give you one really simple answer, and it's this. We put our eggs in Jesus' basket because Jesus offers new life. He's the only one who can offer new life. On Easter, we celebrate that Jesus conquered the grave. He died, and he came back to life. He proved by his resurrection that he's God, and he lives still today. No one else can claim this. We look back at Peter's words when he says to Jesus, Lord, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're it. You're the only one who is able to offer new and lasting life. You're the only one worth following, worth orienting our lives around. What other baskets are worthy of our eggs? And when we trust in Jesus, when we put our eggs in his basket, this is what we find. We experience new life now, And we cling to the promise that we'll continue to experience life with him forever. In this life, we still face challenges, hardships, and yes, death. But we trust that God can take even death and bring from it new life. As Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, so we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside, it often looks like things are falling apart on us. On the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. This Easter, I hope you'll reflect on the grace of God he offers us in Jesus. I hope you'll consider where you keep your eggs, where you put your trust. Is it in Jesus' basket? Are you trusting yourself, something else? I pray you will encounter the risen Jesus and be convinced by the power of the Holy Spirit that he is who he says he is. I hope you'll picture the face of Jesus standing on a beach inviting you in so warmly, so gently. I hope you'll hear his voice saying, friend, welcome home. Pull up a chair around the fire. You're just in time. I'm making breakfast. Maybe he's saying, hey, you dropped an egg. Let me help you put that back in my basket. And most of all, I pray you'll find that when you choose each day to place your trust in Jesus, that what you experience in return is new life. Let me pray that for you right now. God, I know there are always areas of our life where it is so hard to trust you. I pray that you bring those areas to our minds and our hearts today and that we feel your hands prying our hands off of our eggs. I pray that even if it's just one small thing, one small step, that that we'll take that step of trusting you, God, of handing over the thing that we've been clinging on to whether it's a circumstance or a person or whatever it is, God, I pray that you will help us 
graciously and gently help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.